Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So speaking to the saved here who, uh, who, who God has, um, has uh, spread uh, all around the different, uh, different places there. So he's not, he's not writing to a, a local church per se. He's writing to several saints who uh, were scattered all around the, the places that were named there. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and indeed, as we go to, towards our Easter season, we, we are reminded again of the, the fact that we have a living hope because of the resurrection. It says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so he's speaking to those who, again, are saved, who have an inheritance in heaven, who are kept by the power of God. And uh, I was sitting with uh, one of our young believers this week and just talking about just the, the, um, the, the doctrine of eternal security and how eternal security isn't, um, isn't based on our own merit, just like salvation. It's, it's based on the power of God. And he holds us. And so there's a great, there's a great emphasis there in, in, um, as he introduces the letter. It says, wherein ye greatly rejoice. So now again, bear in mind, he's speaking to the, those who are saved, those who are believers who have been scattered all over the, the, the different regions here that are named. It says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And so you, you get a, uh, already a sense of the direction of the book uh, in this introduction, he's speaking to the saved, and then he's going to very quickly go into this uh, topic of, of suffering, of going through temptation and trouble and trial. And really, he's speaking to this group that's been scattered to the different parts. And, and so in this book, he, he, he treats the areas of uh, redeeming, re regenerating, sanctifying, and persevering grace. He, he exhorts believers to the exercise of grace, faith, hope, and love, and really to the discharge of such duties becoming their several stations, whereby they might evidence to others the truth of grace in themselves, and then adorn the doctrine of the grace of God and recommend it to others. He particularly exhorts them to patiently bear all afflictions and persecutions to stand steadfast in that true grace of God. And uh, someone said that in, in a commentary regarding First Peter. So Paul had probably um, recently been beheaded at this point. And so Peter has written to churches now undergoing severe, systematic, government-sponsored persecution under Nero. So that's why the great theme of suffering um, really runs right through the book of First Peter. Christians were maligned or blamed as those who burned Rome and at any rate were anti-Roman, for they wouldn't worship Roman gods. And so very much so, they were vilified. 
They were, they were the ones that, uh, that the government had, had said were to blame for all of the unrest in, the, in that world that they lived in. And, and that's still the case. Even though in our day we don't, uh, we don't really face the kind of persecution that our fellow believers here face in their day, there's, there's still a very, very real, um, real sense of persecution all around the different parts of the world. But, but in, in our day, we're still the ones, if we're living right, that are vilified. We're still the ones that, if we're living the way we should be, that society looks at as the problem that's happening in the world. But we understand that. The Bible tells us all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, what? Suffer persecution. And so if we're actually living right, then, then there are that, there's that sense there of where we can enter into a little bit of the suffering. And so in one sentence, if we were to summarize the book, it says, as Christians grow in understanding their privileges in salvation, their blessings of salvation, and the theology of suffering, they will live in holiness and humility, waiting for their great future hope of sharing Christ's glory. And so all of those themes run through um, the book of First Peter. Some, uh, some quick facts about the book. It's the 60th book of your Bible. The author is Peter. Right? We know Peter. Peter was won to Christ by his brother, Andrew. Uh, he was also the fishing partner with James and John. We know from Scripture that he was married, that he was an energetic and enthusiastic and, uh, and bold in his, uh, his declarations. He was often the, the spokesman for the, uh, for the group of disciples. He was often the one that you know, stepped out and, and while others held it in, he would say it. All right? so, but we also know that, uh, that most probably later on he died a martyr's death. And so this book has five chapters. It has 105 verses. It has 2,482 words. And again, the key word would be suffer. Okay, suffer comes uh, right through this, the, this book in some form, that word, 15 times. And so the Christian's call to and example in Christ is suffering. We are called to that. Um, but we are also given an example in Jesus Christ. And we understand that. Uh, to me, the, the key verse is chapter 4, verse 13, where the Bible says here, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And so there's that very real, uh, very real persecution and suffering that the, the first audience was, was going through. But again, we're partakers of that in Christ. They weren't suffering, and he warns later on, don't suffer because you're an evildoer, but suffer because you're a follower of Christ. And he's saying there that that's, that's something that is glorious. That's something to be commended. Uh, when his glory shall be revealed, and ye shall be glad also with exceeding joy. So those are just some of the key, uh, key facts about the book. Some interesting facts. Uh, Peter, again, uh, probably experienced the testing of his own message, as so many messengers do. Uh, as was shortly uh, after this writing, crucified for his faith by Nero in Rome. It says in, in, uh, in legend, and there's no way to, to prove this, but history sort of bears it out, that uh, he, was, he was crucified upside down because he, he didn't think himself worthy to be crucified exactly like Christ. And so he, he very much underwent and experienced the things that he was 
teaching that God had uh, asked him to write down. Uh, the book contains, uh, amidst the, the, the theme of suffering, some very practical instruction and somewhat unrelated to the overall theme of suffering. And, and you've got to understand again that, that as, as Peter wrote this, he was, he was writing this to a, a great amount of believers scattered in different places. And so um, he covered different aspects of Christianity, practical aspects. Uh, he covered suffering, as I mentioned, but he also spoke about the role of husbands and wives. In, in chapter 3, and then the role of a pastor in chapter 5. So he spoke about those things that were practical uh, regarding church life and, and, and family life. Uh, Peter has often been called an apostle of hope. He, he speaks about that. We read about the lively hope in Christ. And so he's been called an apostle of hope. Uh, Paul is often called the apostle of faith because he wrote so much about that. And John, the apostle of love. All right, if you, you know the, the book of John, the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he writes over and over again about the love of Christ and what love is. And so just, uh, just some, some contrast there as we think about this book. So again, the purpose and theme of the book. Okay, the purpose was this. Roman persecution had scattered believers everywhere. All right, we know that even from the standpoint of the early church in Jerusalem, that the church in general was undergoing a fiery trial, which he refers to later in the book. And um, the devil, through Nero, was seeking to devour all believers. So that imagery of a roaring lion. Okay, Peter wrote this general epistle to encourage them in their sufferings, to remind them of important truths. He sought to give them hope as strangers on earth, but with an inheritance in heaven. And he was trying to help them understand, just like a little bit what we spoke about on Sunday morning, that this isn't our life. We're just sojourning. We're just passing through. And he's saying, look, you're going to go through, you're going through persecution, but you're not grounded here. Your inheritance isn't here. So stop being so earthly minded. And, and so he's trying to encourage them that way. But I think secondly, the second purpose was also, he probably wrote, to show his agreement and support for Paul's teachings. All right, many of the believers that Peter wrote in, to in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia were numbers of churches that Paul had founded. So some in these churches had previously questioned Paul's apostleship, and some had no doubt had heard about Peter and Paul's argument over some points on law and grace that we know about in Galatians chapter 2. So, in writing this, he wrote to affirm his stand against Judaizers and that the gospel was both for the Jew and the Gentile. Okay, and that, that runs through when he speaks about uh, salvation and redemption right through the book. Okay, in which he writes stressing the doctrines written by Paul. All right, he'll refer to that in 2 Peter. But again, he, he probably wrote these epistles to just affirm that he stands with Paul. Who, who, as I mentioned, probably at this juncture of history had just been beheaded for his faith. Uh, and so, again, the theme of the book is victory over suffering with God's sufficient grace. And aren't we glad for that? You know, we go through the things of life and, and we have God's sufficient grace. And uh, the outline of the book, if we were to outline it, uh, we can look at it, uh, we can subtitle it, Suffering as a Christian and Our Hope. 
Uh, we can see our attitude towards suffering in chapter 1. We see the fruit of suffering in chapters 2 to 4. And then we see triumph over suffering in chapter 5. So if we look at the, the themes and the, ge the general arrangement of the book, we can arrange it that way. Uh, the type of Christ, I think, to us as we think about the uh, Christ in Scripture, we see Christ as a suffering lamb. We see Him as a suffering lamb in, in 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And isn't it interesting? I, I find it interesting that uh, you remember on the shores of Galilee, in John chapter 21, when, when Jesus challenged Peter, lovest thou me more than these? And then Peter said, you know that I do. What was, what was Jesus' uh, uh, response? He said, feed my sheep, feed my lamb. And now as he thinks about that, uh, that, that important picture, he now also thinks about the lamb of God, Christ. In 1 Peter 2.21, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. So again, um, as we think about this, this theme of suffering and this, this, uh, this, this great book on, on why, it's because we, we follow the suffering lamb who, who, was, uh, you know, who was bruised for our iniquity whose chastisement, our chastisement was upon him. And by his stripes we were healed. And so we think about that. And that's a great comfort to many of our, uh, our brethren. And, you know, um, we're, we're going to jump into the, the application part here really quickly. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a long book. It's, a, it's quite a quick read. But there's so much in regard to suffering. And so we're just going to think about suffering as a Christian. And, you know, uh, in our Western societies, we're, we're really allergic to suffering, aren't we? We don't like to suffer. We make plans. We, we, we put things together in our lives so that we ensure we, we don't suffer for anything. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, and sometimes here's, here's what happens. We can become very myopic about what it is to be a Christian today. We can, we can sort of just look at it as, well, this is, we don't really know anything more than what we know. But just because we're not really suffering doesn't mean the body of Christ all over the world isn't suffering. You understand that even tonight, as maybe in the next few hours or, or maybe the hours... Uh, in the next couple of days as people get to meet and try to gather for what we're going to do tonight for prayer, there are very, there, there's very real persecution that our brethren face. And, you know, we can, we can be desensitized to that because we don't really hear about it in our Western society. And, you know, uh, we can think about what's happened recently in Christchurch with the the. the the massacres there in the mosques. And you understand there's a great coverage around that, and we should, we should be touched by that. It's people died there that most probably didn't know the Lord, right? We should be, we should be moved by that. We shouldn't just, we shouldn't have this, well, they're, they're Muslim. But here's the, here's the, 
the imbalance of the world. The same week or within the same week, Christians were killed everywhere. And no one covered that. There's no wall in the city that you, you can sign to send your condolences. Our prime minister didn't fly over there. But they're our brethren. And, um, and you know, there's, I think sometimes we need to just be a little bit more informed. And so there's just this short video. It's, a, it's, a, it's really just some statistics and, and just a, maybe an, a perspective regarding why we don't hear about it. And so take it for what it is. Um, and, you know, I, I, I know that on the video it's going to be very general as far as what they term Christian. We understand that. But, but it's just for information's sake. And I hope it just touches your heart to understand that even though we don't suffer like we read about in Scripture, we have brethren all over the world that do, each and every day. All right, so why don't we run that video and then um, we'll, we'll... Which is the most persecuted religious group in the world today? The answer, in terms of sheer numbers and sheer horror, might surprise you. It's Christians, specifically Christians living in Muslim-majority countries, countries where Christians often preceded Muslims by centuries. I'm not talking about war on Christmas type harassment. I'm talking about know your place or we're going to kill you persecution. Astonishingly, the Western mainstream media barely acknowledge what is happening. Let's look closer at this issue. It tells us a lot about the world we're living in. 100 years ago, 20% of North Africa in the Middle East, the birthplace of Christianity, was Christian. Today, Christians make up 4% of the population. Much of that decline has occurred in the last decade. In essence, Muslims are rendering North Africa and the Middle East free of Christians. Take Egypt, for example, my ancestral homeland. In just the past two years, tens of thousands of Christian cops have left Egypt. And many others want to leave, but they simply cannot afford to. Why they want to leave is no mystery. On New Year's Day, 2011, the Two Saints Church in Alexandria was bombed, leaving 23 cops dead and 97 injured. In recent years, dozens of Coptic churches have been attacked, many burned to the ground. In August 2013 alone, the Muslim Brotherhood and its supporters attacked and destroyed some 80 churches. Unfortunately, Egypt is more the rule than the exception. Hundreds of Nigerian churches have been destroyed in recent years, with especially deadly attacks reserved for Christmas and Easter church services, leaving dozens dead or mutilated. Churches have been bombed or burned in Iraq, Syria, and just about every place in the Middle East where churches still exist, except Israel. Christian businesses have been torched, Christian girls have been kidnapped, sold as child brides or slaves, and had acid thrown in their faces for not being veiled. Anyone born a Muslim who converts to Christianity faces jail and possibly execution. The list of fresh atrocities by Muslims against Christians grows longer almost every day. Even in Muslim countries often portrayed as moderate, Morocco, Indonesia, Malaysia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Christian minorities are under legal pressure not to build churches or evangelize. The Christians in these Muslim countries are often identical to their co-citizens in race, ethnicity, national identity, culture, and language. There is no political dispute between the Christians and Muslims, no land dispute. Vastly outnumbered and politically marginalized, these Christians simply wish to worship in peace. Instead, they are hounded and attacked. So then, why is this happening? And why is the media making so little mention of it? The first question is easy to answer. Christians are being persecuted in Muslim countries because they're Christians, or as the Quran puts it, infidels. That is, non-Muslims who are regarded by many fundamentalist Muslims as inferior. As a fundamentalist interpretation of the holy books of Islam has grown in the last 50 or so years, Christians have suffered, and in recent years they have suffered terribly. I document this in my book, Crucified Again, exposing Islam's new war on Christians. 
If this were happening to any other group besides Christians, it would be the human rights tragedy of our time. There would be loud worldwide calls for action. But the silence in the mainstream Western media is, as they say, almost deafening. Why? Because Muslim persecution of Christians throws a wrench in the media's narrative that Muslim violence is a product of Muslim grievance. That grievance is, first and foremost, portrayed as the sin of European colonialism and alleged American imperialism. In the Muslim world's mind, those two sins are personified by the Jewish state of Israel, a nation the Muslim world believes was forced upon it by the colonial powers of Europe following World War II and is currently supported by the United States. Much of the Western world and the Western media have largely bought at least some of this narrative. Here's how it works. Because Israel, with the backing of the United States, is stronger than its Muslim neighbors, the media, while not defending Islamic terrorism, often portray terror against Israel, America, and even Europe as the actions of understandably angry underdogs fighting for what they deem justice. But what happens to this media narrative when Islamic terror is directed against a minority weaker than them, in this case, the millions of indigenous Christians throughout the Islamic world? The answer is that, rather than abandon this narrative, the media just don't report Muslim persecution of Christians, except for the most sensational cases. That's why you probably don't know that there are barely any Christians living in Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya, nations where Christianity once thrived, or that this is happening in Egypt, Iraq, Iran, and even Lebanon. So yes, Christians are indeed the most persecuted religious group in the world today. But reporting it would violate the media's narrative of Christians as persecutors and Muslims as victims. I'm Raymond Ibrahim, author of the Al-Qaeda Reader for Prayer University. There's just the, that focus there in that one area of the world. And, uh, you know, sometimes we're just ill-informed. And so because of that, we just go merrily not thinking about the reality of suffering in our day. We just sort of live our lives. Um, and, and, you know, the reality is, you know, many of our, the ones that we know, even uh, missionaries that are on the field that we, we know of, that this is their daily life, suffering. And I think sometimes we're so detached from the, the reality of it um, that we go through these scriptures and they don't mean much to us. But this is a reality. I, I was just, uh, again, just searching through some, um, some articles today and there's one on Eritrea, which is a country in East Africa. And it just says this, for 33 Christian women, the cost of a complete denial of religious freedom in Eritrea has been incarceration in one of the country's most notorious prisons. The 2017 Persecuted and Forgotten Report describes how the women were caught praying by the regime and were among 120 people arrested in May 2017 during a regime crackdown on so-called illegitimate Christian practice. Reporting back from a rare fact-finding visit to Eritrea, a source known to us said, Prisoners cry out to be dead and go crazy because of the torture they receive. The oppression of the regime against non-registered Christians is merciless. Such violence and deepening poverty has sparked an exodus which has drastically depopulated Eritrea. And that's just one little country in that area. And, um, and they're doing what we're doing tonight. They were doing what we're doing tonight. Gathering to pray. And yet, 122 of them were there that night, knowing full well that there was a very real 
cost to their obedience to Christ. And I think that's why sometimes we, in our Western world of comfort and ease, we're not as committed as those of our brethren who are in those areas. And, and I'm not saying that to shame us. I'm, sh- I'm sharing that to help us gain a perspective of, of how precious it is to be a Christian. Now, some of you young people, you were saved probably at an early age. And probably for many of you, this is all you've known. But understand this. Uh, there's, there's, there's teenage boys and girls all around the world just like you who, being born in a Christian family and, and perhaps being saved themselves, will run home tonight, not because they want to watch some TV show, but because they're running from bullets being shot at them. And they won't be able to go to school tomorrow with any kind of freedom or liberty to, be, to bring a Bible, to bring a tract, to be a witness because they're truly suffering. And yet we're so, so laissez-faire about, so casual, so it just, it just doesn't matter. And yet as the Apostle Peter was writing this to the, those in, in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, there was a very real. And so he encourages them about that Again, if we look at our, our faith historically, and can I say historically because the, the Bible is a historic book, but we can also look at history itself. So if we look at both past, but then the Bible's a different kind of history book because it also talks about history in the future, right? It's, um, it's, it's both past and future. Okay, suffering and hardship is a very big part of who we are as believers, and God allows suffering for His purpose in our lives. And um, so let's look at a couple of verses here. Look at, look at 1 Peter 1, look at verse 16. Sorry, verse 6. Notice there, when you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And notice here His comfort to them. He's saying, suffering has its limitations. And, uh, and he's saying there, though now for a season. And look, we can look at that word season and we can think about the season of life here on earth. But, but also seasons of just time. And, and church, let's not, let's not be ignorant tonight to think that God can't allow or won't allow that kind of persecution in our nation even in our time. Again, we have a responsibility to pray so that we can live peaceably and godly in this present world. That's why we're meant to pray. But he's saying their suffering is limited. It's got its limitations. It's now for a season. Then notice the second thing, if need be. And so, so the kind of suffering that we go through as Christians is never senseless. God's got a purpose if it's, an, it's an, on a needs basis. God allows persecution. God allows suffering into our lives. So it's on a needs basis. So suffering has its limitations. Secondly, in verse 7, notice there that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold than perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So he says, 
Secondly, not only does suffering has its, have its limitations, suffering comes with some characteristics. Firstly, it comes with pain. He says with fire. You, you ever touched a, a hot kettle? You ever touched a, a hot stove? Maybe some of you men were, were sneaking and, and wanting to taste your wife's cooking, and you burnt your finger, you didn't know it was hot. Uh, and you understand that, that heat and, and fire brings pain. And, and part of that is, is God doesn't soften the blow. He, he, he does it for a reason, but it comes with pain. But then that pain, it comes with also purifying. He says, you're like gold that's tried. And it comes with purifying. Job understood this as he went through what he went through. He went through refining and he, was, he, was, uh, he, he came out as silver. He came out purified and, and the, the reason God allows suffering is he, he brings about purifying in our lives. But then it's also profitable because it renders us much more precious. He's saying there's a value attached to it. It's much more precious than gold. And he's saying there that it's profitable for us. It, it's, it's a gain for us when we go through suffering. But then it also lastly produces praise. He says there at the end, unto praise, okay, unto might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And, and here's, here's what, what it is. You know, when we go through suffering when, rightly, when we go through suffering the way God would have us to go through it, what it produces in our lives is a life of praise. So, so true suffering will manifest these in our lives. But when we don't deal with suffering and hardship correctly, what it does is it diminishes our view of God. It doesn't produce praise. It might produce bitterness. So when you go through suffering and hardship, and whatever that might be in our context, and you go through it and you end up with bitterness, you've gone through suffering incorrectly. You've wasted it. And so, so we're, it's meant to end up with praise. And In 1 Peter 2.20, he says, For what glory is it? He says, what glory is it if, um, if we go through, uh, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do it well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. But he's saying, if you don't go through it patiently, you don't go through it the way God would have you to go through it, and the result of, of it is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is a lack of patience or or, uh, or or us doing wrong, then what glory is it? There's no profit. Right? And, and so suffering comes with some characteristics. But then lastly, as, as we alluded to already, suffering brings glory to God. And here's what it is. You know, when, when, when we go through that, that thing of suffering, and as we think about our fellow believers all around the world, and they go through that pain, the purifying, the, how it profits them, and you, you meet anyone that's come out of that. You see their faith. You see just their, their, the wholeness of their worship. You see the praise that, that it springs forth in their lives. Really what it does, it, it brings glory to God. You know, those things, it, God, God purposes it. It's, it's a needs basis. And so it's like when we, um, when we cook a meal and we, we put it in the oven and there's a certain time right? If it goes over that time, it gets spoiled, right? If it goes under that time, it's not 
complete. It's not cooked. But it's just if we write the right temperature, the right amount of time, it comes out. It just smells great. It's edible. It, it does what it's supposed to do. And it's like that for us as believers. When we go through suffering rightly, it then brings glory to God. And, and why? Because when we go through it and we, we have our testimony intact, we're not just praiseworthy. It's God that's praiseworthy because it was about Him. So, so when a masterpiece, for example, is complete, you know, there's an admiration for the masterpiece. People want to visit it. People want to see it. But much more admiration for the master, the one who, who painted it, the one who made it. And, and what I'm saying is God gets the glory because we partake um, in, in Christ's suffering. All right? Um, we see that in, um, in sorry, let me, let me turn back there. We see that in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So, so don't be surprised by what, what you're going through. He says, But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. He says that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So there, there's firstly, it brings glory to God because we partake in Christ's suffering. We're like Christ in that way. So it produces Christ-likeness in our lives. And, and if you've ever prayed that prayer and then faced a trial or a, or a trouble in your life or a hardship, then, then be thankful because He's just answered it for you. If, if you go through it with the, right, uh, with the right attitude. But then also in verse 14, He says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, on their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. So, secondly, God gets the glory because we become a testimony of his work in our lives. Okay, we, we become a testimony or a witness of the, tr the reality and the truth of the gospel. But then verse 16, he says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And here's the last way God, suffering brings glory to God. God gets the glory because we are enabled through our suffering. It's endurance. And so we're able to then proclaim. We're able to then speak forth about who he, he is and what He has done. And so here's what I'm saying tonight as we consider the, the book of First Peter. We might live in this time and we might live in this society, but that doesn't mean suffering isn't happening everywhere else. And then, if it happens to you, think it not strange. And don't, don't discount that it won't happen. Don't, don't think that, well, we live in, in Australia. It's pretty good here. Then if we're, we're going to seek for that, then we better continue to pray. We, we better continue to use the opportunity we have while we have that great liberty to. Because we never know when God will allow some persecution to really get us moving. And, uh, and we better understand that, that suffering is, is part of God's program. It's part of God's, God's growing us up. And so we better just, uh, just be surrendered to the Lord even in that. And so that's the book of First Peter. Let's pray. Father, thank you again, Lord, just for your grace.